We began some weeks ago a series through the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and uh, several conversations these last couple weeks. This is a hard-hitting book. Uh, I mean, it has challenged us on several fronts, and uh, we'll continue to throughout the book, so buckle up. Um, but it's truth we need. And if I uh, could sum up the book of Malachi, is God calls you and I to passionate spirituality. He calls us to a life of not just going through the motions, but of really living for Him and selling out for Him, committed to Him and the, and the implications of that in our day-to-day life. Now I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 6. Follow along if you would. Malachi chapter 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger, messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who repress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you don't hold back from us, that you speak the truth. And Lord, it's true we come on Sunday morning sometimes kicking and screaming. Sometimes, God, the last thing we want to hear is you. Sometimes the only thing we want to hear is you. This morning, that's my prayer, that our hearts would yearn to hear you to hear your truth, to change our mindsets, to change our focus, to change all that's not of you so that our lives would please you. And so, Lord, might this message this morning do that. Thank you so much for your words and all that they're going to teach us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but the, this, these election debates, all this stuff going on and all the stuff you read, some of you are rolling your eyes. You're like, man, I'm with you, man. And... Uh, And some of the things that seem to emerge out of this are attacks on each other and each other's candidates and and this growing sense of uneasiness in America because of all the injustice we see. And the caucuses are coming Tuesday, and I don't know who I'm going to, I don't even know where to vote yet, I've got to figure that out. Um, But I I mean, I'm thinking of a write-in campaign for Tom Krekelberg, so if you see on the TV some votes for Tom, I'm one of them. And, uh, and so I'm tipping my hand right away. Um, he would do a great job. And, uh, but the things that seem to bring the greatest intensity as I was kind of reading about some of these rallies 
Are some of these attacks against police officers who, who others have said they've been unjust in their dealings and, and some different things about that. And it strikes me that when things seem unjust, when they don't seem fair, you ever notice in humanity it just wells up great intensity in us. We want things just. And in America that's certainly true. We expect our leaders to be just. And we're upset, we're ticked off when it seems our leaders are not. In all of this, we expect the highest courts to remove confusion. We expect them to clarify justice. And rightfully so, we're distraught when we look around and see that's exactly the opposite of what they're doing. It's interesting, when justice is in question, great confusion comes. Great disillusionment comes. Matter of fact, disillusionment reigns and commitment and perspective, they wane. But the key is when you and I talk about what's just and unjust is what's our reference point. If God's our reference point, then you'll be able to make sense out of what doesn't make sense. But if your circumstances are your reference point, you'll neither be able to make sense of God or certainly not of life. In the nation of Israel here, as we read in Malachi, they'd slid into a series of consequences that led to tragic consequences or compromises that led to consequences. These consequences escalated to the degree that everything became chaotic and they no longer saw things as they really were. And what moved in was cynicism. Cynicism is simply unbelief in goodness. It's a distrust in motives. Cynicism moved in because God's people questioned his goodness. They questioned whether he was fair. They began to question God's justice. And look at verse 17. There's an offensive question they ask. You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, this is God speaking to them, how have we wearied him? God says, here's how. You say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or you ask, where is the God of justice? The implication is that the wicked seem to be doing quite well. And by contrast, Israel implied, we who do good, at least by their estimation, are evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or it's those who do evil, it's like they're getting away with it. And we who do good, God, we're the ones getting punished. It's not fair. That's not justice. Where is the God of justice? We ask the same question. Starting at a young age. That's not fair. I had it first. Maybe some of us say that when we're 42. But, or why, why can't I be excused? It's just not fair. You punished him one time that way, and now you're dealing with me differently. That's just not fair. And at a young age, starting at that young age, we begin to ask that question. But then it becomes more serious when a child is hit by a drunk driver. The driver walks away with only a scratch, and the child dies. And we ask the question, where is the God of justice? That's not fair. Where is God during these times? And questions about his justice begin to plague us. It's not always clear to us the relationship between what we've done and what happens to us. It's not always clear to us what God is up to on a larger scale. And in Judah's attempts to put this all together, they accuse God of injustice. 
They, de- they attack him, basically, and accuse him of being an unjust God. I thought it would be helpful sometimes to define words, and how would you and I define unjust? Because that's what they're accusing God of. It's being in violation of principles of justice or fairness. It's acting in violation of such principles, unfair in one's dealings and, and, and actions. It's an unjust ruler. It's not in accordance with accepted standards of fairness or justice. It's unfair. It's lacking in justice. It's lacking in fairness. Not only had Judah tried to make evil good, but they implied that God delighted in evil because he did not dispense immediate justice. Now, I need to say a couple things about accusing God of injustice. First of all, it is horribly arrogant. Horribly arrogant. It demands that the only wise, holy, omniscient, sovereign God of the universe come down to our level and defend himself before our petty standards of justice. And the prophets in this context had predicted a glorious future for Israel. But here they were, back in the land for over 100 years after captivity, and things were not all that glorious. Israel was still under foreign domination. She was not the center of the earth with the nations flocking to Jerusalem with their wealth. Not at all. The old folks were not sitting in the streets watching the children play securely. The land was not yielding an abundant produce. And just a hundred years before this, Zechariah had prophesied that all these conditions would come about. But here they were. And none of the prophecies of this glory that Israel would uh, experience had come to true or materialized. They weren't even close. The rebuilt temple was a discouragement to many. It didn't compare to the former glory of Solomon's temple. Because of these disappointment with God's promises, many were voicing their skepticism and even daring to question if God had justice at all. Some even mocked God, saying he delights in evil. That's horribly arrogant to do such a thing. God was managing the universe quite well, long before they'd come along. And long before you and I were ever born. And when evil seems to prevail, and God seems to delay, we're prone to challenge His justice, but it's arrogant to do so. God imposes judgment upon individuals through inevitable outworkings of their sin in their lives, certainly in the lives of those whom they come in contact. But eventually, all wickedness will be judged. And God does this all perfectly well without our help. Because we don't see the whole plan. We live in the midst of ever-changing standards, never-changing world, and we dare not accuse God of doing wrong. It's not only that accusing God of injustice is horribly arrogant, but it certainly seems distressingly frequent. Because you can go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Beginning of the Old Testament, Adam and Eve sinned, and God came to them in the garden and says, Have you eaten from the tree I command you not to? Now, if you remember Adam's reply, he says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree I ate it. He blames God. In a similar way, when God asked the woman, what is it you have done? She replied, the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Now, on the surface, these statements seem to be an honest omission of guilt. But beneath the surface, Adam and Eve... We're doing their best to shift the blame. 
Eve tried to implicate the servant, the serpent, the true she had eaten. But the devil made her do it, she said. Adam blamed the woman. And then with characteristic male arrogance, he hinted that the whole thing was God's fault. They questioned him. And Adam's arguing that the current evil state of things, which was actually a result of his own sin, was God's fault, because God had actually started the whole thing. And so Adam blames God. And it seems like it's almost the root of human behavior in this arrogance. And you see it in many places, on a playground, in hospitals, at the gravesite, where we question God's justice. It started all the way back at the beginning of men and women. But it makes me ask the question, it might be good for you to look inside for a moment, who do you blame for your circumstances? I mean, you ever shake your fist at God and say, why did you do this? What right do you have, God, to do this? If you are like me, there's times we fail to admit our own guilt in a matter and at least acknowledge God may be delaying the execution of justice. Sometimes saying that God maybe was the one who acted sinfully, although we would never voice those words. But you and I must admit, the fact that the delay of full execution of his justice are to him both wise and right. His actions cannot compromise his character. Never. He is just, he's right, he's fear, he's fair, and so are his actions. And he is aware of all the injustices in society, and with the scope of his plan and his time, he will make everything right. Because he's just. He can't stop being just. Where is this God of justice, they ask? Where are you? God meets him with a sobering response in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Now, I have circled throughout um, these next five verses this, the word will. I mean, there's a certainty. It's, it's all over these verses. There's a certainty God said, I'm going to do something. This isn't maybe or... I'll think about it, or oftentimes the kids will say, hey, Dad, could we do this? And my, it seems my reflex, well, I'll think about it. They're like, could you think quicker? <laughs> That's kind of what they want. They want it now. And, uh, but God's not just going to think about it. He will. There's certainty in his answer. And it's a sobering response. And as believers, we affirm God is just. We believe that God will judge all evil one day. But in the meantime, if we were honest, the evil seems to prosper. Righteous are afflicted. It appears evil's unchecked. But what does God say regarding this? First thing he says is, I'm coming. And there will be judgment. And God's answer to the problem of evil is first, he sent the Messiah to judge the earth. Without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We will face judgment. But because Christ came, he carried our guilt, our sin. And justice and grace met on the cross. And the promise here is that a Messiah would come. It was God's answer to all the injustice. God is coming, there will be judgment. The second thing he says is all evildoers will be judged, including those who object to God's management of the world's affairs. You see, if God does not come in judgment immediately, it is because he's the God of grace, as well as the God of judgment and justice. But be assured, these verses tell us justice is coming. And it will be carried out in his time, in his plan. Now it's important for us to remember, because we hear this word justice and our instinct is to think humanly, but 
Justice is not an external system that God tries to adhere to. It's not like God went to law school to learn how to apply his law. His justice comes out of his inner being. His justice is based on his character, his holiness, his truthfulness, his righteousness. It's our perspective that's marred by sin. And he promises here in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, he says he promises to send his messenger who will prepare the way before him. Now Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5, also Isaiah talks about this messenger who will come. Isaiah was written before this, so I'm sure a lot of his hearers knew the passage in Isaiah 40. And I'm sure they thought, good, God's going to do something. He's going to send a messenger. This is good news. And so I imagine this text was very popular, at least the Isaiah one, with the hearers, with the Jews. And the second thing he does in verse 1, this messenger of the covenant is referring to Jesus It's not just he's going to send a messenger. God says, I also am going to come. It's part of a new covenant. Matter of fact, Hebrews, if you're to look back in Hebrews, it refers to that um, new covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. The covenant is blood. And so he promises to come himself. And these are astonishing. It's one thing for the living God to send a messenger. Indeed, he had for many years with all these prophets who had come over and over. But God's plans revealed here. He would dispense with the messengers, and then he'd come himself. God's reply is this coming had long been delayed, but it certainly was not canceled. I thought of John the Baptist, who we know the New Testament tells us is this messenger who comes before the Messiah. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said, As for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Matter of fact, I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. John 1.34, I myself have seen, John the Baptist said, and I've testified that this is the Son of God. And God, back in Malachi, says, I'm sending a messenger. He will point to this messenger of the covenant, the Messiah who will come. And God says, yes, I am acting in judgment. I am acting in justice. I myself am coming. And I couldn't help but thinking, as the Jews are reading this, they're like, Good, you're coming. That'll show them. Good, send the messenger. Get this messenger that come to here, and you can take all these evil nations and you can deal with them. They're probably, yeah, it's about time. And then all of a sudden you look at verse 1, and we find out where this messenger of the covenant will come. To his temple. I'm sure they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Go to the evil nations. Why would you come to the temple? I mean, that's like, well, that's like coming to us. It's like we need help. And God's saying, exactly. I'm coming to the temple. God's saying, before judgment comes upon the wicked, which he talks about in verse 5, I have a purifying work to do. Now, notice the progression of verses 3 through 5. He will sit as a smelter and purifier. And then look, verse 4 begins. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and his former years. Then I will draw near to you for, um, for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And he goes on to talk about that. There's a progression. I will do this then and then. And so God is executing his plan. It's his time. And it's his way. And he begins with this this. This word of a purifying work he's going to do. 1 Peter 4.17 talks to uh, the church. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. 
And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I think God's saying the same thing here. Is before I execute judgment on this unbelieving world, I'm going to come to you first because I need to purify you. You're not ready. The idea is even Christians must be judged by this purifying work of God, which is seen here in Malachi. Now, according to this image, you see, verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. God will be like this refiner. Matter of fact, workers like this can still be seen in the Oriental bazaars today. They melt the ore in a small, like, portable furnace. And as the dross rises to the top, they continually clear it off and scrape it off by the refiner. And the workman, he keeps peering into this little furnace, this crucible, And he keeps removing the dross until he can see his face in the molten metal as in a mirror. And then he knows that it's ready, that the work is done. And I think in a similar manner, God will apply the heat of affliction and discipline until he can see his image in his people. God's going to do a purifying work among his people. In chapter 3, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears and then it talks again about that cleansing he will bring and, and how he will, he will discipline and purify his people. Like most Old Testament prophets, Malachi refers longer term to the second coming of Christ. And I think verse 1 refers to his first coming. We could call this, this time of grace. But there is coming a day when he will execute this time of judgment. Matthew and Luke and those... Parables reveal to you and I that you and I need to prepare ourselves. We need to be ready now for our King is coming. In the first coming, He came to seek and to save the lost, to purify a people who would carry this message out. But only after this time of grace would judgment come. And His judgment is perfect. It's always fair. It's always right. I found it interesting in Luke Chapter 4, 18, which is to me one of the most amazing passages in the life of Jesus' life. He's returned to Nazareth after his baptism by John. And after being tempted in a wilderness by Satan, he begins his public ministry. And he goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's asked to read a portion of Isaiah. And he unrolls the scroll. I want to read exactly what he read, although not in the same language, but... He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped. And in that, Jesus proclaimed, here's what my ministry is going to be. But what strikes me as interesting is the next sentence he didn't say. That's in Isaiah. He cut it off. Not because it wasn't going to happen, but because it wasn't the time for what the next sentence, the passage he quoted was, and the next sentence was, and the day of vengeance of our God. There is a day coming when justice will be meted out, will, will be executed. And while the people in Malachi's day were continually questioning whether God was just, God says, I am just, and here's how you're going to know. I'm going to send a messenger, and then I'm going to come. And then there is a day of my wrath which will be carried out for all those who don't believe. And then as he goes on to talk about it, it says, this day of judgment will come. No one will ever say at that time, 
God, why are you unjust? <laughs> They're not going to ask when God comes in judgment, where's the God of justice? So don't say it now. Because God is always just. And we live in a time when God is extending an invitation to believe in His Son through grace. He calls you to Himself. But He wants you to know there's coming a day when it will be too late. When judgment will be executed. When you and I will no longer be able to say, and no human being will be able to say, where is justice? God, how come you're not doing something? Matter of fact, every knee will bow at that day and confess He is Lord. So in the now... How are we supposed to respond? You see, only after this refining work, only after purifying work of God takes place, are we told in verse 4, only then will the offerings of Judah be pleasing to the Lord. I think there's a principle there. Only when you and I come in purity, only when you and I come and say, here's my heart, are our offerings pleasing in His sight. We too can be careless about worship. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. When there's no purification work, there's no pleasing worship, I think is what God's saying to his people. So in the now, we, are, we ask, where is the God of justice? And God answers in verse 6, "Is I, the Lord, do not change. And because I do not change, you're not consumed. In other words, you should thank me. I don't change. If I did change, you would be no more. God says, you want justice? I'll bring justice. But right now it's delayed and it's for your good it is. It's for your good, it's our good that it is. You and I have opportunity to come to Christ if you have not already. And God says in verse 6, I have not moved. I do not change. The basis of God's word is his character. I've not changed. I was just at creation. I was just today and I'll be just tomorrow. So don't question it. Don't question whether I'm fair. God says I'm always fair. Israel owes her existence. Israel owes her identity to God's unchanging purpose and His unchanging character. It's because of His unchanging name, Judah had not been consumed. But I thought about something for a moment as I looked at verse 6. You know, when cynicism moves in, it seems that hope flees. And when we begin to question God's goodness, He reminds us He has not moved. He's always good. There's a song I love by Chris Tomlins. He's a good, good father. And He's always been a good, good father. He will be today and He will be tomorrow. He does not change. He does not move. There's times when none of it makes sense. I understand that. When God's plan seems elusive. We can't recall the verses we learned as a child or even a line of a song. And the picture's blurred. There's three statements from Scripture we need to take home. And when the world seems like it's spinning out of control more and more, and when we begin to look up to God and say, not sure what you're doing, it's starting to seem like things are unfair, you and I need to cling, cling to these truths. You find them in Lamentations, which is a fitting book for them to be in. As Jeremiah the prophet wept, for the condition of his people. And he says, in the midst of this, in the midst of this great distress, he says, this I recall to my mind, and might you and I as well. And he says, because I recall to mind, there's hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions 
never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. These three truths, the Lord's loving kindness, they never cease. Never. Never runs out. Let that seep into your busy mind. And some of you have been so busy, not much has seeped in the last 30 days, and not much certainly that is from God. But let this seep in. God's mercies, they never cease. And number two, God's compassion will never fail you. Ever. His heart keeps giving. His heart keeps going out to you who are running. His heart always goes out. He has great compassion for you and I, and his compassions will never fail, never run out. Number three, the Lord's faithfulness never diminishes. Even when you blow it, yeah. Even when you make stupid decisions, yeah. Even when in those days you act like a jerk, yeah. His faithfulness never diminishes, ever. He's always faithful. Read these every morning. You might want to hang them on a mirror. God's mercies never cease, his compassion never fails, and his faithfulness never diminishes. And they're new every single morning. They're fresh. And do you know what God's fresh new morning message is to us? Whether the sun's shining brightly or whether it's pouring down rain, whether the morning's bright or whether it's gray and overcast, his promise is to dawn himself every morning, he says. Not every morning you see the sun. The weather's insignificant. Every morning. The Lord comes through with that encouraging message. I'm here. I haven't moved. And let's go together today. We need these truths, especially in a world which seems unjust at times. Yesterday, I got to do something I'd never done before. I went to Chick-fil-A. It was a good day. Man, that, that sandwich was kicking. And those waffle fries... It was really good. But you know what's the best part of it all? The freshest part of the day is we sat outside in the sun on February 27th. That was great. No coat. Even better. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And as we bowed and thanked God for the food, I couldn't help but thank Him for this weather. How fresh it was. And how clear it was. And how good it was. This passage reminds us, although it can be really cold... In February. And although it can be really cold in our lives, God says every morning, I can give you a fresh supply of my compassion and my faithfulness. And God says you're going to need it. You're going to need that reminder because the days aren't always going to be sunny. They're not always going to be desirable. There's going to be days you and I look around our world and say, man, everything looks just so, so unfair. And God says, remember my faithfulness. Remember my compassion. I have not moved. And I'll be faithful and just to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We recognize in Malachi here there is good news. There's also a sober warning. For those who've never entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no hope. There's only judgment on the horizon. You warn us because you want people to take seriously their sin. 
And that justice, because of who you are, must be executed. The amazing thing of Calvary, of the cross, is justice met grace. And a just God was pleased because of the sacrifice of his son, which made unbelieving people righteous, acceptable in your sight. If you're a Christian this morning, I thank Jesus for what he's done for you. And each and every morning, praise him for his faithfulness and for his compassion. If you're outside of Christ, call upon him before it's too late. Because now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to call out to him. I pray you would do that. So Lord, as the weather and the circumstances in our country especially seem so cold and so out of control, we, we take our root and we put our anchor in your faithfulness and compassion this day. We love you and thank you that you never change, that you never move. We praise you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.